Hello there, welcome to Talent and Growth. I'm your host, Paul Church. Thank you for lending me your ears today. This is the People's Podcast. It's about the people, it's for the people, the people that make your business what it is. And today we've got a guest who knows plenty about people and plenty about business because he's been the founder of 13 different companies, including the recently launched Shimmer.ai. He's got a background in psychology and he's got a really good way around explaining what culture needs to look like and the types of qualities he looks for in people to make these businesses successful. So Nadim Sadek, top man, really enjoyed chatting with him. Hope you enjoyed the chat today. Let me know what you think. Here he is. Just a quick word from our partners at MetaView. I am absolutely ecstatic to be able to partner with such a pioneering business. MetaView is an AI-focused interview transcript tool. It means you do not need to take notes anymore with your interviews, your screening calls or whatnot. It compiles the feedback summaries for you. You can go back into it and see exactly who said what and when, so there's no room for error. It saved me so much time, makes me so much more efficient. You can use it for intake meetings. You don't miss anything the hiring manager gives you. You can use it for the hiring manager to provide their feedback as well because all their notes and everything like that are in there. So you don't have to chase the hiring manager for feedback anymore, which is a pain of mine. It's a great product. If you mention talent and growth, you get 10% off, but actually everyone gets five interviews free. So head over to metaview.ai, give it a whirl. Let me know what you think. Here's today's chat. Nadine, welcome to Talent and Growth. How are you doing, my friend? Good. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. And a great place to start, of course. Would you please give us an overview of your journey? And I know there's a lot to cover, including the founding of 13 or so companies, but we'd love to just get a bit of background, who you are, what you do now, and kind of what's led you there. Crikey, this is going to take the whole time, Paul, because I'm so old. <laughs> Let's do it quickly. I'm half Irish, half Egyptian. I grew up all around the world, Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, Europe, United Nations, parents, followed plague and pestilence wherever it was going on in the world, which exposed me to loads of different cultures, which has been very helpful to my career, to be honest. I became a psychologist after studying at Trinity College Dublin, then went into my first job, which was in market research. A series of market research jobs followed, including me founding a market research agency in London in the 90s which became the biggest of its type in the world. I sold it to WPP. And for my sins, they asked me to run a couple of their network companies in 50 or so countries. So that early experience of living around the world became very helpful as I kind of flitted around the place. I then left the world of market research and started my own brand because slightly bizarrely, I had bought an island off the west coast of Ireland and on that island, I started a music business, a whiskey business, and a food business, also a horse business and a hospitality business. They were disasters, but I'll tell you about them if you want later. That led me to realize that I understood how to analyze brands through market search and how to found and run and manage brands through the island businesses. And that led me to my next great escapade, which was to begin an AI-powered brand management system, because my insight was that there are loads of people who had fantastic ideas, who are brilliant at production or distribution or conception of things, but who weren't necessarily brilliant at marketing. And I thought that there were so many things in marketing which were codifiable, which you could make into something that AI could help you with, that we essentially created this business which produced action plans for brand managers, people looking after a brand. And that was a happy adventure for quite a while. Then I decided to start an AI native business. So not one that kind of 
adopted a bit of AI, but actually started from the ground up with AI, which is what I'm doing now, which is called Shimmer AI. And as we record, Paul, we're one week away from launch. So I'm excited and anxious all at the same time. Fantastic. That business produces advertising for products which historically have never been able to generate any kind of budget to justify an advertising campaign. But because of the disruption that AI brings to traditional models, we can now help lots of things which have lain quiet in the shadows, obscured from the light, and we can bring them to shimmer in the light, which is why we're called Shimmer. Lovely name, and I appreciate you having this conversation with us when you're just so close to the go live. So it must be a really, really exciting time. Let's talk about your background in psychology and how that has influenced your approach to business. I wish I'd gone to more of my psychology lectures, really. I wasn't the best student, but somehow being there, it's a five-year course, I was immersed in kind of thinking about how people respond to things in their life, how we make decisions, what turns us on, what turns us off. And so I suppose it sensitized me to the interaction of people and the world. That's been really helpful in two main ways. One is building companies and understanding how people feel at work and what cultures do to them and what the internal values of a company do to its success. And externally, it's made me, I think, usefully sensitive to things like what are the problems that people are facing? What are the pains that you might solve? What are the priorities you should attend to for others? It makes you more sensitive to what your customers and your clients really need. And then in turn, understanding that we kind of all curate ecosystems in our heads. There's an almost limitless amount of information and choices and relationships that we can have in modern life. So we have to find a way to cope with the tsunami of opportunities that we have. And we tend to navigate those intuitively on the one hand, sometimes called system one, your implicit system, to use some neuroscientific terms. It's where you feel things. It's your gut instinct about stuff. And at other times, we give way and say, no, our rational cognitive abilities, our abilities to analyze and to think and to describe are the ones which should take precedence. So understanding that as human beings, we're kind of yo-yos or pendulums that move between our system one gut instinct and our system two rationality has been helpful for me in developing not just businesses, but also the things that businesses sell or provide to their consumers. Can you describe the process of analyzing brands and determining what they need to activate and mobilize and how this is translated into the AI business for marketing? Yeah, it's kind of going back one business, really. That's what we're really focused on in a business called Pro Quo. And essentially, my starting thinking there, there's a guy in the 1960s, I think his name is George Homans, an American sociologist who propounded this theory called the theory of social exchange, which was essentially that it's all about quid pro quo. You kind of get a bit of what you give. And that made me think about brands. So, you know, you buy a toothpaste and you think, well, is there really much of a difference between Crest and Colgate? But it turns out there is. I mean, there may well be formulaic differences between the two products, but actually doing this in a rather amateur way on the spot, Colgate is much more family-oriented, much more jovial, much more open, a bit like Purcell is, to take another example. Whereas Crest is much more scientific and the dentist says that you should A, B, C and you kind of subjugate yourself to their scientific superiority in the way that Ariel does. So Colgate and Purcell versus Ariel and Crest. And we navigate the way that we feel about brands as a means of deciding whether we want to give them our loyalty, our time, our money, our advocacy and so on. 
So I think using psychology to understand what a brand gives, to disaggregate it into, well, what's the product, what's the competitive difference, but also what's the value in a relationship that I get from this? And the truth is that because we have the surfeit of choices, we do confine our personal ecosystem of brands to a small number of really favored brands. It's quite hard for a new one to come in. I don't know if you drink beer, but you know when Beavertown arrived with its neck oil, that was trying to intrude upon a space that you'd already curated. You're already quite happy with your brand. So what did neck oil bring to the party? What did Beavertown bring to the party? What did their lovely packaging do for you? All of these ways were means of inveigling their way into your mind and your heart. And that's what brands do, just like people. If we look at Shimmer, which is soon to be launching, what's the catalyst to you thinking that's the business you want to create and the problem you want to solve? Well, some of it's a bit of a personal thing for me. You know, the great thing about ProQuo is that it analyzed brands really well and produced these action plans, but it didn't actually do anything. It just said, you should do. And, you know, in a good way. What I wanted in the next business was to actually do things for people, actually provide a surface that shifted their business a bit. And the thing that I kind of alighted upon was providing advertising. Advertising, you can see pretty glibly, is just like, well, who cares about an ad? And, you know, it's just an image or a few words on a page or somewhere. But actually what it is is a manifestation of the DNA of whatever it is that's advertising. Really good advertising speaks volumes about the product that it's promoting. And to do that, it has to understand the DNA. It has to understand the product. It has to understand the relationship offering it's making, all the things I'd kind of previously learned. So what Shimmer does is to analyze the DNA. We're actually first focused on publishing and books, by the way. So let's talk about a book. A book is, you know, like a couple of hundred pages full of thoughts and feelings and plots and expressions. I mean, it's a magnificent collection of human creativity and expression. So there's tons to get into there. We go into that, we pass it and we analyze it in different ways that we've created and extract what we call book DNA. So that's the first machine in the shimmer chain, if you like. Once we've extracted the book DNA and we understand that it's about suspense and adventure, but never about cruelty and it's focused on Norway and fishing, let's say, then that first machine says, I've got the book DNA here and it talks to the second machine, let's call it the generator, and the generator says, I'll make some ads with that book DNA. And it goes and produces suspense, adventure, never cruelty, fishing, Norway. And it manifests those in images and words and the conjunction of those things, sometimes in videos, sometimes in sound. And it says, right, here we go. I've created a campaign. And it hands it off to the third machine, which we call the deployer. And the deployer says, thanks for those ads. I know exactly where to find the people who are interested in this sort of stuff, and I'll put it out at the right time in the right channel so they meet it. And the benefit here is that the writer of the book, the author, gets their book expressed and manifested in a much more meaningful and accessible way than just having a book cover that you hope will be discovered one day, either on Amazon or in a bookshop. The publisher gets these assets that they've invested a great deal in editing and publishing and making and distributing. They get them out there and creating more fame and reaching new audiences. And readers are matched with things which are psychologically suitable for them, which they're going to find strikes a chord with them. It chimes well with them. So they go, you know what? That book really feels like it's one for me. And so we create much more effective e-commerce for books because we're matching audiences to things that they'll really like in a very fresh way. Really interesting hearing about the concepts 
behind those two businesses and what you're doing with them and looking forward to seeing the launch of Shimmer. But let's talk about the people side of our companies. I'd love to hear your approaches and your thoughts. When it comes to the culture of your companies, what are you trying to cultivate? What does it look like and feel like for the people within it? I've been on a bit of a journey with this, and I guess I might always be. The things that I thought were important 20 years ago, I don't feel are so important now, and I'm sure I'll learn new things in the coming years too. Where I am now is that I believe in having a very productive culture. People always talk about, well, what are your values? And they tend to be sort of statements that are made of websites or culture statements might be files that you have to read during your onboarding and then you put away in the desk somewhere and you're really never going to see it again. I believe much more in living cultures and businesses. And there are a few things that I've kind of learned I really like (laughs) and that I think produce effective organizations. Some of it's really rudimentary. Like, I really believe in decency and good manners towards people. Almost puerile, as it might sound, I like to encourage, and I do kind of actually intervene if I don't see a lot of it, people saying please and thank you. Honestly, it costs nothing, and it makes people feel good. It shows some respect, and I think that's important. I've actually never believed in having a really high-performing prima donna who wrecks the place with their tantrums and tempers. I just don't put up with that at all. I believe in high-performance, low-friction cultures where people do their very best, they're easy enough to get along with, collaboration, communication, commitment to the cause too. I believe in those things. And funnily enough, I kind of shudder a bit, and this might be slightly counterintuitive given what I've just said about cordiality and all that, I shudder when people talk about businesses of families. I remember when I sold a business and I was welcomed by the managing director of the business that had bought our business, who put her arms around me and said, welcome to the family. I cringe. And I cringe because people can't get fired from families, largely. Sure, there's terrible fallouts and maybe there are silences between family members for too long. But by and large, you can't be fired from a family. I believe that people should be fired if they don't perform well. So it's not that I kind of have this kind of cotton wool, mollycoddling place that, you know, you're not accountable in. I really believe in accountability. But accountability that comes without terror. I like cultures where there's a sense of plenty rather than a sense of scarcity. You should feel rewarded and applauded as often as you deserve. Not that that's something which is reserved only for your annual review or something. So bringing the best out of people, I believe, involves treating them decently, respecting them, promoting a culture of accountability, clarity of briefs. In creative circles, it's often said that you get freedom from a tight brief. By being confined to the very problem you have to solve, you are released to have your greatest creativity. And I kind of believe that too. Give people clear job descriptions, let them know where they stand, let them know where their guardrails should be, and then let them be free within that. When you are assessing whether people are the right fit for your company, how do you measure during the interview process, things like good manners, which I'm with you. I think the ability to treat people in a way that is going to be authentic with the rest of the business and your P's and Q's, absolutely. And also how you measure in for that accountability, which is a huge thing for me. How do you kind of suss that out during the process? I do think that there are some things about hiring which are really, I guess, unsatisfactory. What you're trying to do when you interview somebody even if you do it over, let's say, two or three episodes or two or three in the company, because once you get past about three interviews, I think you're slightly exploiting people's goodwill and 
being available for interview. Let's say you do three different interviews and there were three different people. What you're trying to evaluate is what the longitudinal relationship with that person might be like, but you're doing it through a brief episode. That's almost by definition unsatisfactory. So in those moments, I think what I try to do is use kind of projective tests, if you like, which again come a little bit from psychology, about how would you respond if this was a situation that you were in? And it illuminates a little bit how under stress or in a good place, or if you had to make a difficult choice, how you're likely to behave. You're trying to project the things you know will happen in the course of normal business and hear what people say they'll do. The unsatisfactory thing about that too is that it's a very system two response. It tells you what they rationally articulate they will do. Whereas in the heat of the moment, you'll get their implicit system, their system one response, which is their gut. And it's just who they are. They'll respond to the circumstances they find themselves in. I think you can only approximate. That leads me to believe in probationary periods, normally just of a month, but sometimes for a little bit longer, depending on the role. And be honest in that period. You know, I do come to people after a month of probation and say, I just don't believe this is going to work for you or for us, whichever way around it is. It's tricky. I think interviewing is a really difficult thing. It is. And I think it's a case of Insta versus reality, isn't it? You're looking at, you know, it's like the difference between looking at someone's Instagram story and then judging them on that. They're giving, they're putting their best version of themselves forward. And so you have to kind of try and work out the nooks and crannies of it. The probationary period is interesting as well. It made me think of an example of a client I was working with last year. So I did some feedback surveys from people on their onboarding process and how their first few months in the company had been. Everybody after the first month was just so positive and they felt it had gone really well. But that's still a bit of a honeymoon period. Once you got to three months, there were some changes in that and then actually the reality of it had settled in. So I think that could be both sides of course. I think the three-month probation period, I think it's a good balance for both the individual and the company themselves. Yeah, and I know this isn't directly related to your question, but it's sort of a corollary of it. A thing that I've learned now, and actually even has been emphasized in my most recent experiences over the last five years, is that you don't need to see it waving to know that you've identified a red flag. Some people that I worked with, there's two or three characters that I now cast my mind back to, who I saw red flags with in the first two or three months. And because I was very hopeful for them, I was very ambitious for them, and I was investing both money and my time into them to make them successes, I deliberately overlooked those red flags. Some of them were to do with, for example, quick-temperedness. Some were to do with a sense of superiority over others. Some were to do with just not working very hard. And I thought, well, this is all to do with them getting used to the new environment, the responsibility that they're being asked to take, da-da-da-da-da. And I made lots of internal excuses But the truth is that maybe four years later, those red flags were disastrous and they were all problems. So I now have committed to myself that when I see red flags, I either decide that that is a red flag and it's the parting of the ways, or I directly address it and say, this is something I've seen in you that makes me uncomfortable and causes me to believe that it may not be successful us working together. So please explain to me or here's a chance for you to describe to me why I should see it somehow differently because you never know, you don't walk in other people's shoes and what might look like short-temperedness one day results from severe financial stress and a row with your spouse. Give people a chance. Don't just be ruthless about it. 
But I think it's really important when you're in a position of leadership to be honest enough and strong enough to say, red flags are true. Stop, look at them, consider them. It's so hard, isn't it? Let's talk about, I suppose, planning and recruitment. So how do you balance the current state of the business with future planning, particularly when it comes to recruitment? I'm developing in a rather kind of cottage industry way a notion about how businesses develop as organizations. And I crudely speak about it as the zero to 100 scale. Let me tell you about it quickly because it does answer how I recruit. At zero, a business doesn't exist. At one or two, it's like a few thoughts in your gray matter. Like, I wonder if I could start an AI advertising business. At five to 10, you've started articulating it to some friends. At 15, you've written it down. 20, you've got a couple of people involved. 25, you've shown it to some clients. 30, you've got your first revenues. 40, you've got some output there where you're becoming famous as a brand and people are beginning to come to you. By 50, you've grown to a sizable team of 20, 30, 40, and you're clearly beginning to identify your ICP and your marketing strategies are all in place, your product development roadmaps are in place, and so on. By the time you get to about 60, you've become a proven business with product market fit, and you're thinking about scaling and growing. By 70, you're into things like optimizing the way you're doing different things. By 80, you're a well-established business. And by 100, you are a household name that's incredibly well-known and, you know, people know exactly what to expect from you. So you've got this whole spectrum of feeling your way the whole way through to being absolutely sure of your path. At the start, there's more insecurity, but more excitement. Towards the end, there's much more security, but less excitement. And it's like a slider that you move up and down. Personally, I am nerveless perhaps in a kind of weird way. I have no nerves about going from zero to 30 or 40. This is my 14th business, and I've never hesitated about it. I just do it. And I'm okay from 40 to 50 to 60, proving product market fit and getting a business going. And when it gets to kind of the 70, 80, 90 phase, I begin to feel a bit like a fish out of water. I become less of an originator of a business and much more of an administrator of a business, less of a creative and much more of an optimizer, if you like. Everywhere along that spectrum is precious and all of it is difficult. So I do not cast aspersions on people unlike me, those that live in the 70 to 100 scale. But what I do when I'm building a business is I kind of think about where we are and who I am and the closest people around me in the organization. And I say, we need a bit of something else. So for example, when you're in your kind of 40 to 50 phase, I might recruit somebody from the 80 phase and they might, let's say, be a COO. And the COO steps into the business and says, oh my God, our HR isn't really quite right and where are the contracts and they're not all the same or why haven't we optimized our mobile phone tariffs or that employer's liability insurance is good but it's really not appropriate now for the change nature of it. And they do all the stuff that's incredibly important to the business that I'm not brilliant at. I mean, I kind of know I should be doing it and I have a stab at it, but that's not where I give all my energy. The interesting thing is that that person causes friction because they bug the people who are in the 40s to 50s. Like, why the hell do I need to do that? I mean, we're not a big business. And, you know, all this sort of friction appears. And for the person in the 80s, our 40 to 50 business is really annoying because nothing seems to work quite right and nothing's fully in place. You've got to manage that person and say, look, you're coming in a bit earlier than we need. And you're going to do things that a lot of people think are a bit premature, but I'll back you. 
But you know that they're suffering at work because there's kind of cognitive dissonance between what they like to do and what's actually happening around them. But it's good for the business. So I suppose what I'm saying is be aware of who you're bringing in. Be aware of their center of gravity. Be aware of the things that they get a sense of self-worth and confidence from and support them in it. But know that you're basically creating a cake with some ingredients that aren't due yet. And equally, if you're a kind of 70s to 80s to 90s business, be quite careful about introducing somebody who's good not to 40 or 50. One of the businesses that I ran, a global network, was like a 90 to 100. You could do almost nothing to that business. It just did its thing. It was a, a cash cow for a major ownership structure. I came in and I wanted to change things because that's what I do. I kind of originate stuff. And the amount of turmoil that it produced, it just wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it for me because I was forever being balked and told that we couldn't do that. And it wasn't really worth it for them because they didn't really want so much change. They just wanted the business to be completely predictable. Could you share some of your frameworks for success and I suppose how these have evolved over the course of your entrepreneurial journey? Well, I think some of the things I've been talking about have helped. Understanding that culture is important, understanding that accountability and clear job descriptions and that tight brief for creative expression are important. Understanding the mixture of talents that you need along that spectrum of 0 to 100, I think that counts a lot as well. I think there are other things just about starting businesses that you can't shy away from. Start a business that addresses a real need. Describe the need in terms of pain and priority. Because there can be pains that you think you solve really well that aren't a priority. And you'll never get budget assigned to them, so you won't ever succeed. I think be truly honest about whether you're achieving product market fit. You can grow because you throw money at things. But actually, are people sticking with you? Are people buying more of what you have to offer? Are they staying resolutely faithful to their subscriptions or their relationships with you? Don't kid yourself about the nature of your business. Are you truly self-sustaining or are you propped up essentially by investors who are hoping for the best? Have really enabled leadership teams who can speak their minds, who feel psychologically safe to say, I think we're mad to be doing this or I believe we should double down, at the same time as operating what I call, really a bit obnoxiously, a tree of tyranny. Every organization, however democratic it is, and however enabling of personal performance it is, has to have a very clear chain of command. So if, and it's not always the case, but if the CEO is the ultimate decision maker, don't be scared to show that you will make a decision that may be contrary to the advice of your leadership team. It's your responsibility. That's what you're paid for. Not to be contrary, but to have the strength to say, I've listened to you, I've accommodated your thoughts, and I choose to do something slightly different for the business. And having that kind of cabinet buy-in that even though things are discussed and they may seem to be a majority moving in one decision, in one direction, that a decision by the person of authority in that group can take you in a different way, that needs to be established too. That needs to be respected. So there's a whole kind of collection of different things that you need to do. But I suppose fundamentally in this, I'm talking about an honesty about what you're achieving and being open to criticism and being strong in your decision making. We're going to put a bow on everything we've talked about here. And just as a final question, maybe it's a tough one, I don't know. But if there was 
one thing you could tell your younger self as you were about to set up that first business that you've learned along your journey? What would it be? Funny enough, it's from a book called The Secrets of Sand Hill Road, which I only read five years or so ago. Sand Hill Road is in Silicon Valley, and it's where the first VCs set up, or many of them still are located. And it explains how venture capitalists, who are incredibly tough analyzers of the worth of a business, and we're talking about business here, how they approach it. And the thing that I really most sort of retain from that reading is that there are three things that you must always look at. One is your TAM, your total accessible market. What are you actually addressing? There are subcuts of that of how attainable it is and so on. But be clear with yourself. Be truthful with yourself about what market you're addressing as you start a business. The second thing is your product. Is it fit for purpose? Will it have product market fit? How is it differentiated? Is there IP that supports it? Don't kid yourself that your sandwiches are going to be so much better because you put your mother's recipe for mustard into them. It's got to be deeper. It's got to be more than that. And the third thing is team. Surround yourself with people that do work better than you could do yourself in areas that you can't do and make sure that you're not carrying red flags in that team. So TAM, product, team are, I think, the foundation stones that you should look at on any page that says, I've got a business that I believe in here. Love it. Nadine, thank you so much for sharing your experience and some of your knowledge with us today. As this goes live, I think it'll be maybe a week after you've launched. So very, very best of luck with that. Thank you so much for being a part of Talent and Growth. That's kind of you. Thank you for your good wishes. And it's been fun talking to you. Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nadim. Just a really good, smart guy who I just felt like I was learning from as I was talking to him. So hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you are enjoying Talent and Growth, like, subscribe, follow, share send a letter to someone about us, whatever you think is suitable, but do something to help keep the movement going. Appreciate you. See you next time.